There's something really curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. TGB nominal, where the universe is a figment of its own imagination. All systems remain nominal, nominal, nominal. Hello everyone and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. It's a very special show today and um, obviously I need someone to bounce off of on the show, so I'm going to bring on my usual co-host, John Berger. How are you doing, John? Hello! I mean... <laughs> That's better than a bad accent. <laughs> so how's things with you? Just getting ready for the clocks to turn back and for the days to get darker sooner. Joy. Yeah, uh, we just had that last weekend. So, uh, yeah, it's now starting to get dark before 5 p.m. at the moment. <laughs> And you guys are farther north, so that's even worse. And also getting ready for two months of Americans being fat. Just because, you know, we're now approaching Thanksgiving and then Christmas. So, <laughs> Americans are large enough as it is, but these are the two months where pretty much everybody just says, ah, whatever, hand me the carbs. Uh, there's a, a parody of some of the Christmas songs. I think one of them is, it's, it's the most fattening time of the year. With that pumpkin pie filling and everyone swilling down eggnog and beer It's the most fattening time of the year <laughs> I, I understand that <laughs> We're just going through the, the firework night procedures at the moment So we kind of have a mini version of what you go through Because people do get through a lot of food during firework night <laughs> For, for those of you outside of the UK, you're talking about Guy Fox. Yeah. Okay. Some people call it Guy Fawkes Night. Some people call it Firework Night. Some people call it Bonfire Night. Lots of different things people call it. Bomb the Parliament Night. Well, I I say about Guy Fawkes is the only person ever to actually go into the Houses of Parliament with a, a true reason for being there. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> so how's that Brexit going for you? <laughs> Pretty bad at the moment, because they've, they've just gone through courts which say Brexit cannot go through without actually being voted in by Parliament. Yeah, I saw that. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> the thing is, though, that the Prime Minister is now saying it will go through, we will make it go through, and the only way you can do that is be going through the European Court of Appeal, which, um, <clears throat> yeah. Ah. Uh. <laughs> The irony, it hurts. <laughs> it hurts. It's really bizarre at the moment. Our uh, comedy news shows have been doing their usual thing over here um, where we have a special way of predicting which way different elections and things are going to work out. Oh, God. You're going to get me depressed. You talk about this election, aren't you? What a disaster. Where's the reset button, man? And the way we work it out is we have a pig race. That is not uh, ironic in this case. I think it's very appropriate. <laughs> was at least his pig painted orange? It was kind of that getting that way. Okay. <laughs> That's at least something. 
Yeah, it's just let, let me just apologize to the rest of the world because I had nothing to do with this mess. Don't kill me. <laughs> what what a disgrace! I mean, when even Americans are, are embarrassed by it, it's just okay. Let, let, let's talk space. Yeah, that's the best thing I do. I think. Oh, please! Space is probably the better place to be next week. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I think this is a, a good time to say when when we come back, we'll have a few news stories. since our species first looked up at the sky, we've dreamed of reaching Mars. Back in 2029, that dream became real when the first humans set foot on the red planet. And in a few months, a new group of astronauts will make the journey. It's one of humanity's most ambitious undertakings, the direct result of a decades-long global space race and of a joint mission created to extend human exploration to the farthest reaches of our solar system. This is the story of Ares, our greatest adventure. Behold the Hermes, the most complex and expensive machine ever built. We only built one, and it remains harbored in low Earth orbit between missions. Astronauts rely on shuttles to travel up to Hermes, and from there, they set sail on a perfect controlled cruise. But make no mistake, this is no easy journey. The trip to Mars is as dangerous and challenging as anything we've ever tried. The average journey checks in at 140 million miles. And throughout the trip, Hermes and its crew are bombarded by cosmic radiation that would irreversibly damage their DNA, if not for the ship's protection. And if that isn't enough, solar flares, asteroids, and meteoroids pose a catastrophic threat to the mission. One major strike could leave Hermes stranded in the hostile environment of space with no hope of rescue. Provided everything goes as planned, the Ares 3 crew will arrive in Martian orbit 124 days later, ready to descend to the surface. Once on Mars, they will spend a month in a habitat designed to protect them from low oxygen, high radiation, dust storms, and temperatures that can dip 100 degrees below zero. Despite those challenges, the crew will thoroughly investigate the planet's biological history and its potential to cultivate and sustain life. Depending on what they learn, Star Talk of the Future may be posting to you from a permanent self-sustaining Martian colony, examining a new adventure that will take us even deeper into the stars above. Earth a magnificent world to which we owe our creation, no longer seems destined to be our final resting place. Our adventure is just beginning. On behalf of StarTalk, we'd like to wish the Ares 3 crew a safe journey 
Godspeed, Hermes. And as always, keep looking up. This is TGP Nominal. I've got a, a news story that actually broke this afternoon, actually, citing a desire to both maximise the cargo delivered to the International Space Station and to ensure that it stays on schedule. Orbital ATK said today that it will launch its next Cygnus mission on an Atlas V rather than using its own Antares rocket. Orbital ATK said that the AO7 Cygnus mission, previously planned to launch on an Antares rocket from Wallop Island in Virginia, will instead launch on a United United Launch Alliance Atlas V from Cape Canaveral in Florida in the spring of 2017. The company said that this is a one-time arrangement with future Cygnus launches returning to the Antares. The shift in the launch vehicles for 087 was a, and I say this in air speech marks, a collaborative effort between NASA and Orbital ATK, said Frank DeMuro, Vice President of the Human Space Systems at the company's Space Systems Group. So they don't actually say what caused this I mean I can't see what difference is it going to make because it's going in the same capsule so what difference does putting it on a different launcher make I was letting you read through it just because I was wondering about that too um yeah I don't know uh, is that maybe a slight lack of confidence in their own rocket it sounds that way but it says launching on an atlas allows the Cygnus to carry more than 300 kilos of additional cargo versus using an Antares I can't see how personally but that's the yeah. statement they've made today that they're going to be using an atlas 5 for their next mission that's rather weird that's for low earth orbit right that's going to the ISS yeah okay so that's low earth orbit okay well there's actually a big difference I, I will admit to everyone I'm cheating I'm currently looking on Wikipedia so be it but uh, the Antares on low Earth orbit can handle 6120 kilograms, so 6,120 kilograms, but the Atlas V to low Earth orbit can handle anywhere between 9,800 to 18,000. So the Atlas holds a significant larger payload than the Antares does. But the actual cargo is going to be in the same sickness capsule. I wouldn't have thought they'd have a different capsule, one for Atlas use and one for Antares use. I might be wrong. Yeah, because the Cygnus only has a capacity of, at most, 3,500. Which it says here. That doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, granted, they've got the extra there so that they can launch this CubeSat thing, um, but that's not going to give them extra cargo for the ISS, which is what they're claiming this will do, which indicates they've got two different sized um, Cygnus capsules, depending on what rocket they use. And, and CubeSats are tiny. Yeah. And comparatively speaking, anyway. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, well this is, says, as well as an external CubeSat deployer from NanoRacks, bringing its total capacity to 3,600, so it's only 100 kilos more having the CubeSat deployer that, on there. That makes no sense. I mean, unless this is a uh, very passive way of saying, well, we don't know about our rockets right now. That's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, that seems to be the only thing I can think of also, because as soon as I saw the story flag up, I was like, ooh, that's odd. But, but they've had flights already. Yeah. I don't know. Like, cue the conspiracy theorists. <laughs> I'm really, I mean, just, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, obviously, you know, the Ontarius has plenty of room storage wise mm -hmm. to handle that. So, why does it have to go on a, 
I'm at a loss. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see if there's any more info comes out over the next few weeks um, and see if it sheds more light on the situation. Yeah, so I'm, I'm curious now. Well, a little bits on uh, New Horizons here. It, it's taken a while, but the last of the uh, flyby data from 2015 has finally been downloaded. It took 15 months to do it, but uh, it, it's all there. It's now all down. And it's still going to take many years to analyze all of it. As we know with the Rosetta mission, there, the amount of data that they got in that small space of time is going to keep them going for at least another 10, 15 years of, oh, yeah. <laughs> of uh, analyzing. So the, the stuff that they've been getting from the New Horizons mission must be humongous amount of data. <laughs> 50 gig, I think, something like that. Which, when you have to, what they have, what, like a one watt, they can only transfer data back really slowly. That's why it took 15 months. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they have to try to conserve their power and so forth. But from what I understand, and I don't have the link, and I do apologize for that, from what I understand, they're making all of the raw data available to people to look at. All the images and all the sensor data. Supposedly, I think they're making all of it available, or most of it. I've seen some of them. Some of the files are big. Yeah, I can imagine. But I mean, I've actually, yeah, I've actually seen some of the images, and they are nice. I'll give them that. They are nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, uh, they, there was some impressive stuff coming back from Pluto, and one can only hope that the stuff they're getting from there, as, as the mission continues, is going to be just as good. Well, I know they said that they have possible indications that they even saw some clouds on Pluto. Really? Well, I, I mean, I doubt that it's like what we have, mm-hmm. but that was the one thing that I remember reading that that there's a possibility that they might have seen some evidence of that, which is kind of cool when you think about it but now you're as you said it, its mission is not over its next target is 2014 mu69 so this is a kuiper belt object uh they expect it to arrive there on january 1st 2019 so uh it currently is in an area what they call the cold classical region which scientists believe contains some of our solar system's most prehistoric material so you know basically from the formation of the universe yeah uh, hubble has already taken a look at this and right now the they believe that it has like a reddish color, possibly even more red than Pluto. Obviously, we won't know until it actually reaches it. But it's nice to see that its mission is still continuing on. And uh, now we have to wait until beginning of 2019 to find out what else it'll do. It didn't seem that long when we were waiting for the New Horizons mission to get to Pluto. Time seemed to fly by. Probably not for those guys. <laughs> <laughs> but well, it just doesn't seem like it's been 15 months since that night that no. they finally got there. That only seems a few weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, 15 months. I'm getting old. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember signing up for the um, to, to have my name put on the the CD that was uh, strapped to the side of it when mm-hmm. it went up there, and that was like 2005, 2006. Yeah, still, it, it, it's cool that it's still going on. Mm-hmm. So it just stinks that it's going to take so long because that thing is about a billion miles past Pluto. In that time, that's just phenomenal. Yeah. Really oh yeah, is. it's definitely going fast, but still, just to think of a billion miles you can't even compute that really can you it's not really you, you can't put that into perspective of oh that's from here to wherever because right that's like from here to wherever so many times again because <laughs> i mean the earth is what like twenty-two thousand miles at the equator mm-hmm. something like that i'm doing some really bad quick math so forgive me here so uh let's see that's 
50,000-ish times around the Earth's equator. Wow. If I'm, if my math is accurate. That is. That's a lot. Yeah, you, you, you can't even... <laughs> Try flying that one. And with the amount of fuel that it's got as well. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. The construction of a giant new telescope that has faced intense protests may be moved from Hawaii to the Canary Islands. It's oh, been really? Announced. I missed that. Yeah. The, I, I knew about the protests and the people that were upset by it. Yeah, the 30-meter the telescope, or TMT, is set to be one of the <laughs> modern wonders of astronomy, a, a vast groundbreaking observatory that will peer into the distant universe in a mid-infrared range. Originally, the plan was to build the telescope in Mauna Kea, notable for its high altitude and thus thinner atmosphere, allowing for less obstructed views of the cosmos. There are more than a dozen telescopes in the area that take advantage of the conditions, but one issue with the area, a dormant volcano, is that it is sacred ground to the native Hawaiians. Mm -hmm. Since the site was picked for the TMT in 2009, some of the locals have fought the construction in Hawaiian courts and protested vigorously. In 2015, December 2015 actually, its construction was temporarily blocked. Now an announcement that the TMT International Observatories, TIO, Board of Governors, <laughs> has selected a backup site in the La Palma, Spain's Canary Islands if the construction in Mauna Kea is not approved. After careful deliberation, the Board of Governors has identified the, there we go, Observatorio del Rocco de los Muchachos, ORM, on, <laughs> <laughs> on La Palma in the Canary Islands, Spain, as the primary alternative to Hawaii, said Henry Yang, the chairman of the TIO board. A decision on the Hawaiian construction will be made later this month following the hearings, but a decision is likely to be contested either way and it will be months before it's resolved. Sounds about right. With construction hoping to begin again in April 2018. A second site has also been selected in Hawaii, just in case the original site has been rejected. <laughs> oh, this is getting confusing now. The La Palma is already home to many telescopes, but being about half the altitude of Hawaii, it's not the preferred location for the telescope. It's not to say that all Hawaiians are opposed to the project. Many, no, 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 many no. see the benefits, including bringing jobs and tourism to the area, not least the incredible science that it would afford. In fact, a recent poll in 2016 showed that 60% of residents supported the TMT, with 31% opposed. But you know, it is on sacred land and it is for the original peoples, so you've got to honour their beliefs. Whatever the outcome, astronomers hope that the issues are resolved soon. With its aperture of 30 metres, or 98 feet, it will be the second in size only to the European Extremely Large Telescope. <laughs> or the ELT, yeah. <laughs> which is currently being built in, in Chile and expected to begin operations in 2024. Both will give us glorious new views of the universe and increase our understanding like never before. The European Extremely Large Telescope. <laughs> What's going to be next? The ultra, oh my God, large telescope? It's, <laughs> seriously? Why can't they just name it after somebody? Uh, <laughs> like the Lovell, the Lovell telescope, you know, that kind of things. And, oh, dear. 
but um, one way or another they've got a they've got other backup plans so let's see which way it goes just yeah, wait, yeah. wait for the rest of the hearing <laughs> Well, we might as well talk about SpaceX's little explosion problem. <laughs> the exact acronyms and so forth are here somewhere. They don't have the exact root cause. They just know that, obviously, they started to fill up the tank, and there it goes. So attention has gone to the three composite overwrapped pressure vessels, uh, COPVs. <laughs> you knew it was coming. Inside the LOX, liquid oxygen tank. <laughs> Gotta love it. Apparently, they actually have done a bunch of testing on this possibility in Texas, and SpaceX has shown that they can recreate that failure entirely through helium loading conditions. So it says these conditions are mainly affected by the temperature and pressure of the helium being loaded. That's, that's kind of interesting. So it's not even so much procedural, like did it go in too fast, did it go in too slow, but possibly did it go in too cold? or too hot. The scientific part of me is just thinking, wow, that that's really detailed. Obviously, they're going to keep going on with this, but now that they have been able to basically recreate the issue, they plan to resume testing on the Falcon 9 rocket stages soon, that's all they say, but they, they say that they are on track to resume operations of the Falcon 9 before the end of the year. Yeah. That part is just amazing. I was hearing rumors that it might even be as soon as early December. And, and again, it's a good thing that it looks like it's an operational thing because then they can just change the operations and be done with it instead of manufacturing or, or you know, some kind of physical defect because that would really take a long time to fix. The one thing that is of concern, I don't have the article, I just briefly read the headline. I didn't actually get a chance to look at the article. Apparently, Elon Musk has even said that He's considering being able to fuel the rockets while astronauts are on board. Seriously? Yes. I'm sorry. I don't care how confident you are. Just based on what happened? Uh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not at least, I don't know. That just, maybe it's just paranoia, but based on what happened... I don't know that I'd be comfortable being an astronaut in that situation. I'm not a rocket scientist. I wish I had the capability of being one. Maybe there's something about how, well, you know, the, the fuel has to stay at a certain temperature and it can only be that way for so long. Mm -hmm. Maybe, but I don't know how comfortable I am at that. It, it's, it's sort of like the first shuttle launch after Challenger. Yeah. Everybody held their breath at the go with throttle up. Mm -hmm. The chances of anything happening at this exact moment are so improbable, but... So, I don't know, I guess it's just nerves right now. Yeah, I can't see that the health and safety boys are going to say, yeah, we'll allow you to do that. <laughs> That's what I said. I didn't, I just saw the headline and I thought, what? And I meant to go back to it, but I didn't have a, a chance to do that. So, I, I don't know, I'm kind of hoping that it's an article that belongs on Snopes, but <laughs> you never know. Or The Onion, you know. Yeah. China's private space industry prepares to compete with SpaceX and Blue Origin. In the US, much of the recent media attention to space travel is centered on the activities of flamboyant billionaires and private companies. Left out, though, is the fact that, like in much of the rest of the global business, a new generation of Chinese commercial and tourist space endeavors are looking to compete as well. One of the more intriguing of China's emerging commercial space launch companies is, get this, X-Pace. Really? Yeah. Really? <laughs> 
Can they make it any more blatant? It was founded in February, and the firm will lead the tenant of China's first commercial space industrial park in Wuhan in China. It has already signed up for 10 launches for its solid-fueled Kuzuhao rockets. X-Space's chairman is also the deputy director of the 4th Academy of China's Aerospace Science and Industry Corporation, or KASIC, <laughs> which, which makes the, the Kuzuhao rockets. The Kuzuhao, which is derived from the launch vehicle for the Chinese anti-satellite weapons and mid-course missile defense interceptors is a solid-fueled two-meter diameter rocket with the latest KZ-11 engine and it can loft a 1.5 ton payload to low earth orbit at a launch cost of $10,000 per kilogram. X-Pace's target market is to launch small satellites for domestic and foreign customers. The solid fuel of the KZ-11 also means that compared to liquid-fueled rockets, it can be launched on demand. It's quite impressive, but I don't know, putting red rag to a bull <laughs> with the name <laughs> a little bit. Um, the next up is a company called the Qiangqi Group, who have a, a $1.5 billion investment to sci-fi tourism. Now, this includes an, a high-altitude balloon to carry manned traveler capsules, as well as personal jump jets and a space theme park. <laughs> The Qiangqi Group is looking to give tourists the high life in a three-hour flight in a cloud high-altitude balloon that starts at the exo-atmosphere, which is about 24 kilometers above the ground. The tourists will be seated in a space capsule called a traveler cabin, which dangles daringly out from underneath the airship. The cloud balloon is possibly related to China's giant high-altitude uh, Yangming airship which which flew in 2015 both the yangming and the cloud have more serious applications as well as because they can take on roles like um, persistent wide area sensor coverage for missions from natural disaster relief to missile defense the high altitude of these airships could also make them communication nodes in case satellite networks fail i know these things sound bad when we mentioned there's like military applications to all of these but when you think of every single rocket that has launched in history had military capabilities to start with i mean Vostok one was a, a ballistic missile so you know they've all started off that way and, and yeah. headed into more passive industries as it were you know maybe i'm being more dismissive than i should be but i'm sorry when you said it's going to be three hours immediately my brain went passenger set sail that day for a three-hour tour a three-hour tour and we know what happened there <laughs> i'm not saying they can't do it i'm sure that we've had plenty of of people send things up into lower areas of space with balloons and then retrieve them lots of videos out there but that sounds like hey let's have these grand ideas just to make people interested but feasibility i don't know and personal jump jets. What? <laughs> Come on. What is this, Buck Rogers? If it can be done, I want to have a go. But yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, I just I see myself as uh, like Lunar Jet Man. You know, it'd be it'd be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I loved watching the the uh, footage of the the MMU. I loved that, but um, obviously people were a bit hesitant about using it, and it never never really got used after that. I think they did the test runs on it and didn't really get used, apart from in gravity. <laughs> I don't know. To me, and again, maybe I'm just being dismissive. It just seems that a lot of the stuff that's coming out of, of there is just like, look at all these grand plans that we have. Look at us. And it's just like, yeah, I'd be surprised if a lot of those things actually do come to fruition. Seems to be a lot of money invested in it, though. <laughs> Uh, invested money doesn't necessarily mean viable product at the end. Mm, this is true. Um, a lot of it is just in it, there's test beds and, and research and things, and then that's basically it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Had a little uh, glitch on the Juno mission, and they're not quite sure why, but apparently it went into safe mode. Yeah, I heard about this. All they said is that uh, a software performance monitor induced a reboot of the spacecraft's onboard computer. Oops. As someone who has worked in IT for 20 years, yeah, when a computer just reboots for no apparent reason, it's cause for concern. It's still in orbit, uh, doing everything that it needs to do. But, you know, they said that uh, the team is still investigating the cause of the reboot and assessing uh, the two main engine check valves. Yes, I mean, its mission seems to be unaffected, but it kicked into safe mode and they had to get it out of it and then start figuring out what happened and last i checked i don't know that they had an explanation yeah i didn't see anything anywhere about that either yeah i don't know but i mean hey as long as it's still running for december 11th which is when it does it it's close pass it's going to get as close as 2600 miles which is really close when you consider the size of that beast that's all that counts but still it's just a little bit weird to see that a computer just reboots itself. But, you know, hey, space is hard. We've said that how many times? Uh, every episode, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's we seem to have a lot of flaws going on with a lot of uh, space-related things. Whether, whether that Mars probe crashing or this reboot or a rocket just blowing up on the pad, you know. I think it's sometimes the case of the, the turnaround. It's, you know, such a quick turnaround on things now. You mm. will get the, the few flaws getting through. Now, this stuff has to be researched. I'll be interested to see if they come up with something. But, I mean, after all, the well, the amount of radiation that that thing is getting bombarded with right now, mm. you know, maybe there was just a glitch. They, they hit a more powerful spot of radiation than it expected, and who knows? Hey, as long as they got it going. Ladies and gentlemen, you know it. You love it. You can't live without it. This is TGP Normal. Nominal. Damn. Satellite engineers have been puzzling over why GPS navigation systems on low-orbiting satellites like ESA's Swarm sometimes black out when they fly over the equator between Africa and South America. Thanks to Swarm, however, it appears that thunderstorms in the ionosphere are to blame. Launched in 2013, Swarm Trio is measuring and untangling the different magnetic fields that stem from Earth's core, mantle and crust, oceans, ionosphere and magnetosphere, undertaking at least four years to do all this. As with many satellites, ESA's three Swarm satellites carry GPS receivers as part of their positioning 
sound system so that the operators can keep them in the correct orbits. In addition, GPS pinpoints where the satellites are making their scientific measurements. However, sometimes satellites lose their GPS connection. In fact, during their first two years in orbit, the link was broken 166 times. What? Wow. <laughs> Paper published recently describes how Swarm has revealed that there is a direct link between these blackouts and the ionospheric thunderstorms around 300 to 600 kilometers above the Earth. Claudia Scholl from GFZ Research Center in Potsdam, Germany said the ionospheric thunderstorms are well known, but now we have been able to show a direct link between these storms and the loss of communication to GPS. This is thanks to Swarm because it is the first time that high-resolution GPS ionospheric patterns can be detected from the same satellite. These thunderstorms occur when a number of <laughs> electrons in the ionosphere undergo a large and rapid changes. This tends to happen close to Earth's magnetic equator and typically just for a couple of hours between sunset and midnight. As the name suggests, ionosphere is where the atoms are broken up by sunlight, which leads to free electrons. A thunderstorm scatters these free electrons, creating small bubbles with little or no ionized material. These bubbles disturb the GPS signals so that the swarm GPS receivers can lose track. It transpires that 161 of the lost signal events coincide with these thunderstorms. Hmm. The other five were over polar regions and corresponded to the increase of strong solar winds that caused the Earth's protective magnetic magnetosphere to wobble is that a technical term <laughs> resolving yeah, you know <laughs> resolving the mystery of the blackouts is not only good news for swarm but also for other low orbiting satellites experiencing the same problems it means that the engineers can use this new knowledge to improve future gps systems to limit signal losses it is pretty amazing that they've been able to find this out but uh, yeah 161 times they didn't have an acronym in that story come on no um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to send an email. Dear Isa. <laughs> well, dear Isa, number one, more acronyms. Number two, NASA is all freaking uppercase. <laughs> Get that second one straight. <laughs> Sorry, that is a major pet peeve of mine. <laughs> this is more movie related but hey it's still space related fox is releasing the movie hidden figures to a limited release on christmas day now granted they're doing that strictly so that it qualifies for the oscar but still i'm gonna go see this because i'm very intrigued by this the movie is actually about three black women who were very critical when it comes to getting the Apollo rockets up into the air. Uh, it focuses on three women, Katherine Johnson, Dorothy Vaughn, and Mary Jackson, who helped in the space race. And it was their calculations that allowed John Glenn to become the first American astronaut to complete an orbit of Earth. When you think of NASA back in those days, you, you think of white dudes with slicked hair and those thick uh, like NHS kind of glasses and white shirts and ties. <laughs> That's what you think of when that really couldn't be farther from the truth. Because there were a lot of women who were very critical in the Apollo space program. And this movie focuses on three of them, not just because you know they had to deal with the, the prejudice because they were women, but because they're black as well. And the trailer actually, it's like the first half 
makes it look like it's it's going to be a funny movie and then the second half starts to deal with the more serious nature of it and it actually just it looks like a good movie and that's again it's going to be limited release if it's available in the area then i'll probably go see it but it's going to be available limited release on christmas day but it's supposed to hit theaters nationwide on january 6th so it's not like you'd have to wait too long to see it i'm very interested to see it especially if it's accurate you know just to see how, the, how those women really were important uh to the space station you know because they could do all those formulas in the chalkboard that would just make my mind short circuit <laughs> and i have a great amount of respect for those people definitely these people that were uh doing things manually shall we say mm-hmm. uh unlike their modern counterparts you know working out these equations to get these vehicles up on the moon and and into space just staggering <laughs> NASA has been looking at an array of targets on Mars with its extensive suite of instruments on board the Curiosity rover. Now, whilst doing so, Curiosity has discovered a weird-looking rock that will certainly cause bloggers in many basements around the world to claim that it is an alien artifact or maybe a robotic head. Ah, What was that line again? (laughs) Bloggers in their basements? Uh, Certainly caused bloggers in many basements around the world to claim that it was an alien artifact or maybe a robotic head. I love it. I want to see their tinfoil hat collection too. (laughs) (laughs) The rock in question has been dubbed egg rock by researchers at the Astrologically Science Center in Arizona. No acronym there, actually. Um, We'll give it one. ASC. It was studied by the rover's ChemCam remote microimager, which shoots lasers at a target and then analyzes the light released by the vaporized rock to work out what the material is made of. While the analysis is still ongoing, the team running the Red Planet report from Arizona State University suggest a small nickel-iron meteorite as the most likely candidate. Curiosity has found meteorites on Mars before, but this one seems significantly more polished than the previous ones discovered by other rovers like Opportunity and Spirit. Meteorite chunks like this are likely common on Mars due to the atmosphere, which is significantly different from Earth's. The red planet has on average 1% of the atmospheric pressure of our own planet, which helps meteors, especially more dense ones that is, reach the ground intact. Mars' atmosphere lacks abundant oxygen and water vapour, which would rust and eventually erode the object. For this reason, iron meteorites dominate the small number of celestial rocks that have been discovered on the red planet. Curiosity is continuing its work inside the Gale Crater, slowly climbing the shallow slopes of Mount Sharp. The mission's primary objective was reached in 2014. The rosary is now moving towards the capped ridge edge of it, uh, which is rich in hermatite, which is an iron oxide mineral. We continue to reach higher and younger layers of Mount Sharp, said the Curiosity project scientist Ashwin Vasavada of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. Even after four years, it still has the potential to completely surprise us. And I think it will. You know, there's lots of different things up there that uh, they're going to keep discovering. But it it was weird to see straight off. I mean, it doesn't look like anything else that's up there. A few years ago, found these metallic like little pebbles which uh, when I put it up on Facebook people said there must be giant rabbits up there 
but um, that was an odd one as well these they were kind of almost like bulbarians they seem too perfect to be natural but then when you look at the different winds and things that they have up there which they've obviously been discovering recently you look at um, the way things are brushed and things and they do make uh, unnatural looking shapes there's places on earth that are completely natural but don't look natural Giant's Causeway in Ireland is a great example of that. There are people that fit the description too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Giant's Causeway, I don't know if you've ever seen it. They have these kind of, um, I can't remember what shape it is, it's either hexagonal or octagonal columns that come out of the ground and they look too perfectly formed to be natural. They look man-made, but it is a, a natural rock formation. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm looking at those. That's Wow. Yeah, there's no way that you can't look at those and say, oh, somebody carved those out. But it's 100% natural. That's cool. These rovers, they're just, I'm just completely blown away by those. Mm. They were supposed to last, what, 90 days? And now it's going on almost 13 years for opportunity? It's mind-blowing, and it's still doing stuff like this. Yeah, it's climbing up things it shouldn't be climbing up first time. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> I, I'm just so blown away by those things. Yeah, it's pretty amazing stuff. Opportunity just recently helped out ESA trying to find their... Uh, yeah. Which they didn't want to admit that it had crashed. The term they used was hard landing. Oh, you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, they don't have a, a very good... Uh, track record with Mars which is unfortunate because this was just a um, precursor really to the the big one the Exo Mars in 2020 mm-hmm. which they're going to have to completely rethink I mean they're still going to be able to do something won't they I mean the, the satellite is still going to be up there isn't it oh yeah that's that's bringing, so, that's that, bringing back some really interesting data but uh, yeah ESA's not having a very good time lately Yes and no. I mean, I, I mean, on the on the plus side, we can say that they have had a lot of failures, none of which have re- have resulted in a loss of life, mm-hmm. which unfortunately NASA can't say. But that's part of space travel. Mm-hmm. But I mean, Beagle, Philae. Well, Philae, yes and no, because yes and no, yes and no. I mean, it, it did, but the rockets didn't fire. Yeah, so that, it ended up in that in that valley. That was uh, also caused the first, though, if you think about it, because it was the first ever vehicle to actually multiple land <laughs> on a comet. No, not intentionally. That's true. That's true. It, it bounced, but it kept going. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't intentional, but it did it. <laughs> yeah. It, it just would have been nice if this if this last one didn't. What, what do they say? The thrusters are supposed to go for, what, 90 seconds or 60 seconds, but they went for two? Yeah. Yeah, that's not going to slow anything down. The parachute didn't come out at the time that it should have done either, so mm-hmm. um, that uh, caused problems but they're things that can be worked on they know what happened they know the problem so they just got to make sure it doesn't happen again i mean the one they're going to do in 2020 is going to be on a bigger scale because it's going to have a rover Mm -hmm. strangely i love it i love the name of it i really do love the name of it it's going to mars and they've named it bruno (laughs) okay well let's let's just hope that the rover lands and doesn't decide today i swear i'm not Sorry, that was the best one I can come up with. But yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> let's just hope that they get it right because it seems to be some kind of curse at the moment. <laughs> A group of six space exploration enthusiasts plan to spend two weeks in isolation in a Mars simulation dome, mimicking life on the red planet. 
the mission known as the, the Poland Mars Analog Simulation, or the PMAS, yeah, will, there's the acronym, <laughs> had to have it, will take place on March 19th to April the 1st uh, in 2017 inside the Modular Analog Research Station, acronym MARS. Um, uh, Gotta laugh. Which is going to be located in southern Poland. The main goal of the PMAS uh, 2017 is to conduct research that could someday be crucial for the future astronauts living and working on the Martian surface. During their stay inside the dome, the analog crew will carry out a variety of experiments in the field of geology, biology, psychology, agriculture and astronomy. Working in full isolation, the mission team will conduct experiments and measurements in and around the habitat and the nearby exploration site. They will log their activities and report everything to the mission support centre, the MSC. Located this in is the acronym episode, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> in Turon, northern Poland, some 330 miles away from the dome. Mission support will provide astronauts with the necessary information and an optimized daily schedule. PMAS 2017 is managed by the Space Generation Advisory Council, or the SGAC, uh, in support of the United Nations Programme on Space Applications. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> the the SGAC is a global non-profit non-governmental organization and a network representing university students and young space professionals to the United Nations space agencies industry and academia this whole project is actually crowdfunded oh wow and they need $30,000 to actually do it and I think they've got something like 12 days left the uh, the crowdfunding I think it's an Indiegogo site I'll put a link up to it if you want to help these guys out another one of these missions in a barren area basically I mean, it's good that they're doing it I guess I just maybe I'm just kind of cynical on that because no matter what it's still on earth how accurate of a simulation can it really be I mean, the only way to truly get a good simulation is to basically get Martian soil down here mm-hmm. uh, unless they absolutely know what the components are and they can they can replicate it as closely as possible without actually getting the stuff back I don't know you know they're talking about planting things and I, I guess I'm just worried that really how much of this is can only really be more psych- psychological than anything else yeah uh, if there's a crack in the dome well they'll still get air mm-hmm. you know I don't know I, and I try not to be cynical on this because it's science and it's fantastic that they're at least doing this. But still, part of me just wonders the viability of, of these kinds of things. Is it really accurate beyond the psychological impact of the people who are in there? I, I guess that's just me overanalyzing things. Yeah, there's a lot of things you can't do on an, in an Earth environment, which you'd need to obviously do off-world growing things is not going to be the same because obviously we know how things grow (laughs) on earth I think there's going to be more of the psychological side of things being cooped up together with no real contacts with the outside world I mean there has been other things like that in the past remember that crew of um, six Russian 
female cosmonauts that were mm-hmm. in that mock-up of a, a spaceship. That was a more of a psychological test, wasn't it? Didn't we have a couple of them uh, that were like a year um, or, or something like that? Yeah. I, it wasn't recently. No, it's, it's, it, we're talking probably about 10 years ago. Right. But yeah, I do recall something like that. So it's going to be a similar thing. I'm assuming this is the first time anything like this has been attempted with crowdfunding. Yeah, no, no that's true. And again, I'm not trying to downplay it. I'm glad it's being done. But I guess this just the, the overthinking part of me really wonders how viable it is when it comes to things like you know material like that, like growing plants and so forth. I don't know, but I, I just have those concerns. <laughs> An Australian rocket scientist has built a prototype ion drive. Obviously, they're talking about using it to go to Mars and so forth. It's using recycled space junk for fuel. He designed this thing with Airbus Defense in Space. He actually plans to launch it to the International Space Station for testing. Apparently, this is the first time that Airbus has taken on a customer for any kind of research for this one. And they plan on having this device installed by 2018. Ion is uh, basically using plasma particles for using thrust. Think of, uh, you know, well, I guess they, they did reference that in Star Trek in the original series. There was mm. one episode where they talked about ion-powered engines, and they made it sound like it was, wow, this is beyond even what we've got. You know, And then, of course, we have TIE Fighters, which stand for Twin Ion Engine. And I'm also thinking of Back to the Future with Mr. Fusion, where he's mm. recycling junk to fuel it. But that was to get 1.21 gigawatts! <laughs> Sorry. So anyway, so yeah, instead of chemical-based rocket propulsion, which is kind of what we use for a lot of things right now, ion drives use a magnetic field that project ionized particles at incredibly high velocity. And, you know, the whole, for every action, there is an equal opposite reaction. Unless it's an electromagnetic drive, apparently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's that's still going around, too. Oh, yeah. They're still talking about that, that EM drive, that impossible EM drive, which is amazing. It says that uh, it throws out metallic ions at a high speed, and just like there's recoil when a bullet comes out of a gun, the recoil from the plasma moving away gives you thrust, which pushes your spaceship along. So these ionized particles start out as solid metal, and that's where space junk is coming into play. They're electrically heated until they turn into plasma. The material that they determine is is, is really the best for this is magnesium. And hey, space junk is made out of a lot of magnesium. So now collecting it, I don't know how you'd really be able to do that. But uh, right now, NASA's record holder for the same kind of technology, it's the high power electric propulsion, HIPAP <laughs> system, which allows 9,600 seconds of specific impulse, according to this. But this prototype, actually, did I even mention the guy's name? I don't think I did. He's PhD graduate Patty Newman. But this engine of his apparently can achieve 14,690. So that's 50% more efficient than NASA's engine. So again, none of this means a thing until you can prove that it works. Right now, though, he's working with Airbus and hopes to have a prototype sent up to the ISS by 2018. But if he can find a way of uh, collecting all this junk, there's so much uh, we can get from that because we do need to get rid of some of this stuff. It's just yeah. floating around everywhere. Yeah, I mean, and they know where most of them are. You know, there, there's a there are maps out there showing where any specific piece of space junk is at any given you know any given moment in time. Mm. So it can be collected. I would assume you know at some point. Right. But still, I mean, just the thought of of using ion power. I mean, they've been, they've been using ion power and that sort of thing for a while now. 
in, in their own way, but I'm pretty sure. sure some of our deep space probes are ion powered or, or similar principle. It's being used in, in somewhere in in the space industry. That's for sure. Yeah, I'm looking it up here. I'd swear we have something going on with that. Yeah, ion thrusters are now being used to keep over 100 geosynchronous Earth orbit communication satellite in their desired locations. Mm-hmm. There we go. I just had a brain fart. Sorry about that. Am I allowed to say fart on this podcast? <laughs> I don't think that that's really offensive. <laughs> I don't know to whom. <laughs> so, John, that's the, uh, the end of our new section. We've got something pretty special coming up when we come back from the break, haven't we? Absolutely. This is so cool. We've got a special guest that we're going to bring out, and uh, I think you're going to really enjoy this. So um, come back after the break, and uh, all will be revealed. This is TGP Nominal. Deluxe man in space, complete with missile base. With astronauts and satellites, you send them into flight. Three, two, one, fire! Deluxe man in space. Wow, what a toy! Deluxe man in space is sold only at food markets. Blast off into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. Do you desire a place to get away? How about three? You truly belong here among the clouds on Bespin, the first stop on your Star Tours getaway package. Stay and play in the clouds and enjoy the spectacular Galaxy in the Skies fireworks pageant every single night. The fun continues on the forest moon of Endor, where you'll sleep under the stars with the lovable Ewoks in their charming tribal villages. Your third stop brings you to the peaceful world of Alderaan, where you can relax in a natural wonderland, recently voted safest planet in the galaxy by Hyperspace Traveler. This Star Tours getaway package is three times the fun in one, so ask your travel consultant to book yours today. Joining us on the line from the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, we have Noah Petro. Hi, Noah. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you? Yeah, fine, fine. Obviously, with me, I have John. John, just feel free to um, kick in any anytime you want to ask something. Like that's ever been a problem. Come on. <laughs> Noah, what is your role at the flight center? Uh, well, that's a complicated question. I wear many hats here. Normally, I'm a research scientist. My area of uh, interest is in studying the geology of the, the moon. And so I spend my research time focused on uh, analyzing data, both from uh, orbital missions as well as uh, samples that were brought back by the Apollo astronauts in trying to understand how the surface of the moon has evolved and then apply that understanding to other planets like Earth. I also am the uh, deputy project scientist for the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, LRO, NASA's spacecraft orbiting the moon the past seven and a half years. So um, I have uh, very busy days keeping track of a moon-orbiting spacecraft and trying to move my own research along. Tell us a little bit more about 
what happens at the at the flight centre? Because I know uh, you've got things that you've been involved in over the last few years. Some some of the big discoveries over the last few years and spacecraft. Tell us a little bit more about that side of things. Sure. I mean, I love working here at Goddard. Goddard is one of many NASA field centers. And so every field center has a different specialty area of expertise. Goddard happens to be NASA's largest science center. And I like to say that Goddard is a very special place to work because we're the only of NASA centers where you could develop an instrument, a mission, build it and launch it and operate it from the same NASA center. At Goddard, we have capabilities of building instruments, of building spacecraft. Uh, we have the scientists here kind of analyze the data. We have the engineers who can operate the spacecraft. Uh, the Wallops Flight Facility, which is out east of us here on the uh, uh, Atlantic Ocean, uh, can launch spacecraft. Now, scientifically, Goddard pretty much represents all of the main areas of research that, that NASA funds. Earth science, heliophysics, study of the sun, astrophysics, in planetary science. And so I work mostly with planetary scientists, a few Earth scientists as well. And so we kind of cover the spectrum of what NASA does. Uh, we have people here who are interested in human spaceflight and who are doing work towards human spaceflight. We work very well with the other NASA centers, and we are constantly building instruments to go on other spacecraft. So, for instance, New Horizons had a camera, an instrument that was built here at Goddard. Pretty much almost every spacecraft in the solar system has some component that was built here at Goddard. So we're very, very proud of that, and it makes for exciting times when it comes time to proposing for instruments for missions. Uh, a lot of energy is, is put into getting the best instruments put on those spacecraft, and we here at Goddard take that very seriously. Goddard's not one of the more popular space centers. I'm sure if you ask most people, they'd say, well, the Johnson Space Center in Houston, and certainly they do outstanding work with, with human spaceflight. Kennedy Space Center, all their magnificent launches. The Jet Propulsion Laboratory, a research center out in California, gets a lot of profile with all, all their work with Mars, and certainly the Martian profiled JPL very well. But Goddard is is a key player in, in pursuing all of NASA's science and technological advancements. It, it sounds to me like Goddard is pretty much like a hub for the other facilities. In, in many ways it is. And, and as I said, we have a good working relationship with a lot of the NASA centers and interact with them. And, you know, every NASA center has its capabilities. But, you know, the best NASA is one where everyone works together and we compete. Certainly comp competition is important, but we also support each other in, in various ways. Goddard has always had a leadership role in the communication system within NASA. So we have a, a very important role in being able to communicate with spacecraft in deep space and Earth orbit. You know, the, the saying goes that when uh, Neil Armstrong uttered his famous words as he stepped foot on the, the lunar surface, those words came through Goddard before going out to the rest of the world. <laughs> and so we, you know, we, we look for any way we can we can get the, the credit we deserve for, for the great work that goes on here. But uh, you know, NASA has a, has, a, has a nice structure where all of the centers uh, have their capabilities and contribute to each of the other centers as well. So how many people are actually working at the center? You know, there are thousands of scientists, thousands of engineers. NASA, as I said before, we have the, the, the most number of uh, scientists of any of the uh, NASA centers. We have upwards of probably around 10,000 scientists, engineers, technicians, artists, writers, managers, finance people. It's in that ballpark. There's always a busy day here at Goddard. It's good for the, the, the local community here in Greenbelt, Maryland, and a lot of interactions with folks in, in Washington as well. So it's always a very active and busy place. The other space centers obviously have you know their own visitor centers where people can go and, and see things. Obviously, I'm also saying this with a little bit of self-interest, seeing as how I'm just across the Mason-Dixon line from you guys. 
But yep. do you guys also have public facilities that people can go in and, you know, visitor center, that sort of thing? Absolutely. So we have a really nice visitor center here outside of the main security gate of Goddard. So anybody can come in. It's open Tuesday through Friday and we have weekend activities as well. You can go see a full scale engineering model of the LRO spacecraft. You can get insights into the uh, James Webb Space Telescope that's being built here at Goddard. We launch later uh, like next year. Um, and so the visitor center is not at the same scale that you might, have, you might see at the Johnson Space Center, at the Kennedy Space Center, but it does a really nice job of sharing some of the science and engineering that goes on here at Goddard. We have public events, nighttime events, lectures, but the, yeah, the Goddard Visitor Center is well worth a visit if you're in D.C. It's free, so that's always a plus. It's a, it's a lot of fun. I, I do a lot of work at the Visitor Center, you know, talking to the public and, and, and engaging with, with interested parties who, who uh, stop by. Oh, okay. Well, don't be surprised then if you get an email from me later on saying, hey, I might be stopping by. And that would be outstanding. I, I always take the opportunity when friends and, and colleagues visit to show them around here because we're doing work for the, for the country and really for the world. So, you know, I'm always very proud to show off the great things that go on here and, and really the fun people too. I mean, one of the great parts about working here at Goddard is that we have really just outstanding people working here. It's always a lot of fun. Never a dull moment at Goddard. I can't imagine anything space related would be dull. <laughs> the main reason we uh, got you on board this evening was that um, there was a supermoon coming up very soon, isn't there? That's right. On uh, November 14th, we'll have our yearly uh, supermoon, which actually is a very cool supermoon because it'll be not only the closest full moon of the year, but it'll also be the closest full moon that we've had to the Earth since 1948. So a long, long time it will be uh, making its closest approach uh, since since then. So, what exactly is a supermoon? That's the $10 question, or the £10 question, I guess, as I, <laughs> I might. Supermoon has become a thing of, of, of the last several years, and there's no one set definition that everyone appears to agree on. Supermoon is defined, broadly speaking, as when the full moon occurs within 90% of its closest approach to the Earth. Okay, well, that's a very kind of broad definition. That's why we can get three supermoons in a year and a supermoon in consecutive months. We sort of ascribe to a slightly different interpretation where there's there's only one supermoon and it's the, the closest full moon in a 14-month cycle. And why is that 14-month cycle important? A close approach of the moon to the Earth, what we would call perigee in its orbit. So first of all, you know, the moon doesn't have a perfectly circular orbit around the Earth. Uh, it gets closer at times and further at other portions of its orbit. And so there's a 14-month cycle in close approaches. And so once every 14 months, it gets close to the Earth. And so we kind of use this definition, and there's, again, many different interpretations of the supermoon, but the closest full moon in that 14-month period. So November 14th here in the U.S. will be the supermoon. The next supermoon will be in January 2nd, 2018. But the, the next time the moon will be this close to the Earth will be in November of 2034. So we get, you know, once every several decades or multiple decades, we get these closer approaches. Um, and, and this one happens to be uh, one of the closer approaches over the last uh, several hundred years. So the one that's coming up will really only be visible from the U.S.? Or? The wonderful thing about the moon in general, the moon gives to everyone. So this is a supermoon for the entire world. Mm-hmm. So for listeners anywhere in the world, definitely around November 13th or 14th. And really, this is not a solar eclipse, which we have coming up in August of 
next year here in the U.S. You know, there's not, oh, you've got to see it at this moment or you've missed it. On the night of the 13th, on the night of the 14th, that's the time for people to go out and see it anywhere in the world. So whether you're in the U.K., U.S., anywhere, go out and check it out on that night. Now, there is obviously a moment when the moon will be is full and there's a moment when the moon is closest to the Earth. But, you know, the difference between looking at it at midnight in the U.K., going from the 13th to the 14th versus looking at it the next night here in the U.S., that's a real subtlety and, and no one would really be able to see appreciably at least any difference in the size. The phase would be slightly different. But again, the point is that the moon will be very close. And so anytime you have on the night of the 13th, the night of the 14th, go out and look at the moon. The moon is always beautiful. And if you've never looked at the full moon, take this as an opportunity to go and do it. The moon won't be this close to us for about, uh, what is it, for at least 15 years or so. So get out, take a look up in the sky and enjoy it. Practically speaking, though, is it really going to be any different than any other full moon? It will be larger than your average full moon. It will will be about 14% larger than a typical full moon. So 14% is not insignificant. I would like to think that if someone came and said that they would give me a 14% raise, I would think that's significant. Yeah. <laughs> 14% more pizza is more pizza. Yes. Um, and actually, the other, you know, there's a there's a corollary. It will not only be bigger, but also because it's closer and larger, it will also appear brighter. Now, again, if you had something that was 14% larger and you put it side by side to something, it'd be hard to necessarily process that and say, okay, it's for, you know, with your naked eye, say, but... If you're photographing the full moons, say, and you put them side by side, you will see that the moon is indeed larger. You will see that difference. So it is appreciable. And, you know, again, this is not a fireworks display. There's not going to be some, oh, oh my goodness, this is the most amazing thing. I mean, it is beautiful. It's amazing. But I always encourage people to use this as an excuse to start paying attention to the moon to really pull out that, oh, yeah, it does look larger now. The caution is that there's always this optical illusion when the full moon is close to the horizon, it looks huge. And that's an optical illusion. So when you look on social media and see your uncle or aunt posting, oh, the full moon on November 14th is going to look like a basketball held right in front of your face, that's not true. It will not be that large in the sky. And ultimately, to get the, the best orientation and appreciation of the full moon is to wait when it gets higher in the sky later at night, away from the horizon. Um, and there your mind will be playing tricks on you and making the moon look larger than it actually is. With the supermoon, because you've got the, the different types, haven't you? Because the one that we had, was it last year, the blood moon? What makes that happen? Well, so last year we had a sort of a unique supermoon, at least here in North America, and I think portions of the, the northern hemisphere saw an eclipse, a lunar eclipse during a supermoon. That was a pretty cool show. That was definitely something that we wanted people to get out to see. And so eclipses uh, you know, are known as these blood moons because the moon turns this beautiful red shade as it passes into the Earth's shadow. But you know, each full moon has a different name associated with it, a hunter's moon, a beaver moon, and all of these are, are, are names. And, and every moon has a different name based on the different culture. But you know, it all harkens back to the era when people actually paid attention to the, the phase of the moon and to the full moon because they, they based their lives on it, whether they would hunt or, 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 or farm or, or whatever. So there was a, um, a, you know, a real attention paid to the moon. And so that's why full moons all have different names ascribed to them. 
but the, yeah, the blood moon last year was because of this uh, really unique uh, eclipse that occurred. Yeah, I, re- I was able to actually see that, and I, I got some photos of it. And I remember, I will never forget it, because throughout the day we were working out in the yard, and it was cloudy and all of that, and I was just swearing to high heaven. Like, you know, the one day <laughs> you can't give me a clear night. I was just livid at Mother Nature. And uh, I remember I went out to look at it anyway. And my older daughter, she was just like, oh, man, I want to see this. And even though it was a school night, because she'd never seen any clips before. Mm-hmm. And just before the blood moon hit, if we looked to the southwest, there was a patch of no clouds heading right toward it. Oh, yeah. And it timed itself perfectly. So I don't know if I cursed Mother Nature enough that she's like, okay, okay, let's shut him up and just give him a clear super moon. <laughs> but I remember seeing that blood moon. I got a lot of pictures of it, and it, that was just amazing to look at. And to hear my daughter talking about how, oh my god, this is so cool! The science dad in me was very pleased about that. I'm always advocating that any opportunity for people to go out and look up, look at the moon, look at the sky, you have to take it. And, you know, eclipses are a wonderful way to see something change. Oh my goodness, the moon's color is changing. What's happening here? And hopefully people are, appreciate these opportunities to take it and get out and just get outside. Turn off the computer. Turn off the, you know, the, the tablet or phone and just look up and enjoy being outside and not distracted by the rest of the world. Okay, so what kind of things is the LRO looking at? Uh, it's an incredible spacecraft, if, if I can say so myself. It has seven instruments on it. Now, LRO was designed to identify safe scientifically interesting landing sites for future human and scientific robotic exploration. Now, our goals have shifted, but we always have been focusing on science. Because we've been at the moon now for seven, over seven years, the longest to date, uh, we're able to actually detect not only how the moon is and what the moon's surface has been like, but how it changes. There's a paper that just came out identifying 220 new impact craters that have formed over the life of LRO. By taking before and after images, we're able to, to measure the amount of change that occurs on the lunar surface. And that tells us about the cratering rate at the moon, which, by the way, is the same cratering rate striking the Earth's atmosphere. So the moon is this great witness plate to understanding the Earth. And so we are detecting change on the surface. We're identifying where there are volatiles on the lunar surface and how those volatiles may be migrating across the the surface of the moon. So we're really doing this incredible study of of an airless body that just happens to be in our backyard just happens to be visible from Earth that everybody can go out and see at some point. And it's telling us about, you know, fundamentals of planetary science, the rule book by which we understand every other object in the solar system. And that is written at the moon. So you said it's been going on for more than seven years. Was it originally intended to be up there this long? Or is this sort of like the, the Mars rovers where it was designed for a certain amount of time, but hey, it's still going, so let's keep using it. LRO was initially going to be a one to two year mission. We would map the moon, very high resolution, just get the those those high priority science targets and and fortunately very early on we had advocacy from from folks within NASA headquarters as well as the whole science community recognizing the value of sustaining this incredible spacecraft at the moon so it was not designed to last seven years the spacecraft was built here at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center I mean I know some of the people who built it and they built an incredible spacecraft I always am very glad when when the successes of the Mars rovers are uh, acknowledged but LRO is in that same family 
you know, we're now at seven years and we've had to develop new techniques to keep the spacecraft operating for that long. And, and you know, even after seven and a half years at the moon, still healthy, the instruments are still operating pretty much as they were designed to. Some instruments have had some degradation in capabilities, but they're all returning valuable science. Every two years now, we go through a process by which we propose to NASA headquarters a new two-year mission. So we've just been granted a two-year extension that will take LRO through the end, essentially the end of, of 2018, and fairly soon we'll start planning what we would want to do for another two-year extension. We're investigating ways to conserve the very small amount of fuel that we have left on the spacecraft. For the first, essentially, two years of our orbit, we were at, at the moon, we are at a 50-kilometer circular orbit. It took us very close to the lunar surface. After the, that first two years, we went into an elliptical orbit that takes us close to the South Pole, but high above the North Pole, and that requires a very small amount of fuel to maintain that orbit. We've actually been asking the questions of, of how do we extend that orbit so that we can potentially stay at the moon, not just for two more years, but for five more years, six more years, seven more years. It, you know, we're starting to look down the line and saying, well, really, how long can we keep the spacecraft alive, maintaining the high profile of science that we can accomplish while also um, keeping ourselves ready to respond to unique opportunities. Over the past few years, several other lunar orbiting spacecraft have uh, reached the end of their missions and have crashed into the lunar surface. Thinking specifically of the the, um, the Grail spacecraft that cr were crashed in the moon several years ago, and we were actually able to observe those impacts from orbit to measure what sort of effect those impacts had on the lunar atmosphere. And so we always are looking for other opportunities to make new and unique measurements, and so we are trying to conserve fuel so that we can put ourselves in the best position to do that. Realistically speaking, how long can the LRR keep going? Uh, so fuel-wise, that, and that's a great question, and this gets a little into orbital dynamics, but basically if we, were, if we were to do our yearly burns, maneuvers to maintain the same orbit that we're in right now, we would have about seven years worth of fuel left. However, this year, we opted not to do that burn. We were going to skip a year, and so basically what we asked is, well, if we don't do these yearly burns, if we just let Sir Isaac Newton take over the driving the spacecraft. What would happen? There's one of two things. One is that the spacecraft would get closer and closer to the moon, eventually crashing into the lunar surface. The other is that the spacecraft would orbit would circularize at a, at a higher altitude. It turns out that that second option, the circularizing at a higher altitude, would occur. And so if we do no more yearly burn maneuvers, the orbit would circularize at about 100 kilometers. And so that's an option that we're pursuing as a possibility for the, the future of the mission, that we take our foot off the, the gas pedal, if you will, and really just let the orbit naturally progress, which would put us out into the tens of years of a possible orbital lifetime. <laughs> Things break in space, <laughs> so we, we never know what, what, what might happen in the future, but that's certainly a possibility. And again, as long as the spacecraft is scientifically productive, the instruments can return scientifically useful data, and NASA feels that we're doing a good job by, by doing and conducting interesting and high-profile science. We hope that the money continues to run in so that we can, can keep doing that, and we hope that, that the, the spacecraft remains healthy. And at this point, the spacecraft has performed very, very well. So what is actually powering? LRO. LRO is powered by solar panel. Uh, we have a, a solar array that sticks off the side of the spacecraft, and so we require a solar illumination to charge the batteries, basically. So we have these very capable battery system on LRO. You know, in its orbit, in a roughly two-hour orbit, we're illuminated for roughly two hours and we're in darkness for two hours. The interesting thing comes when we go through a, a lunar eclipse when the moon is blocked by the shadow of the Earth, when the spacecraft doesn't get that, that normal uh, charging cycle, we basically have to shut everything down on the spacecraft. Actually, we, we've 
shut all of the instruments except for one we keep on to measure the temperature change on the surface of them but ordinarily we charge by pointing the solar panel at the sun what's the fuel made out of oh golly it's a hydrazine it's a very uh reactive fuel and it's not what you would go get at your local gas station of course you know it's a hostile environment in space and it, it does not uh, degrade appreciably over time so you know we you know if you've got your gas tank full and you don't run your car for several weeks the gas can can certainly kind of not react so well in your car but we've got uh, very high octane stuff in the lro spacecraft and uh, it still works so you said that people are still studying the the samples brought back from the apollo era oh yeah no the the apollo samples are the gift that keeps on giving 45 years later you know we are still learning things about the moon from the apollo samples there are apollo samples that have never been studied and there is also great value in going back and reanalyzing the samples, the immediate aftermath of the Apollo program, there was a great deal of interest in researching and in studying the samples. But those were using techniques and instruments that were, are now 40, 45 years old. And so with modern analytical approaches, we can learn more about the samples, even looking at smaller samples than we were able to look at before and uh, come up with new discoveries just by reanalyzing the, the same samples. They really are priceless specimens that we have here on Earth. I always like to use the analogy of the uh, Rosetta Stone, the beautiful artifact on display at the British Museum. That Rosetta Stone is the sort of the key of unraveling hieroglyphics and gives us great insight into uh, ultimately into how to interpret all of Egyptian history. But it was with the Rosetta Stone that we were able to unlock the, the hieroglyphics and, and learn more about ancient Egyptian culture. Well, the Rosetta Stone weighs twice as much by mass as all of the Apollo samples. And so we use those samples very similarly to the Rosetta Stone to unravel the ancient history of the moon and by association, the ancient history of the earth as well. And so we, you know, we, we don't have an unlimited supply of, of lunar rocks. We also have lunar meteorites that have come from the moon, but we don't know where those meteorites originated from on the lunar surface. So each of the samples tells us something very important about the history of the moon, and it's just up to us to understand and interpret that. One of the cool things that's happening now with the, the orbital data we have from missions like LRO is that we can say, ah, well, we know this sample came from this point exactly here on the lunar surface and better understand the geologic context. Where do the rocks come from and how do we use those samples that, that, that came back from the moon, whether it's a rock, a soil sample, uh, what have you, and better understand what's going on immediately around the landing site and then extend that to the rest of the moon. What, what kind of materials were brought back and how much? The Apollo astronauts brought back, in terms of lunar samples, rocks. They brought back uh, the regolith, the soil of the surface, the ground, micro fragments uh, of, the, of the lunar surface. They, they took core samples going down a meter below the surface. They brought back a real wide range of, of material. Ultimately, though, they brought back just over about 300 kilograms of rock and soil fragments that are now still being studied today. Keep in mind that the uh, initial uh, Apollo missions, especially Apollo 11, they were on the moon for just a, a very short period of time, just a few hours. And so their primary goal was to land, get some samples, and then come back. So, you know, each of the missions had different uh, masses of rock that came back. There was basically sort of an exponential increase as the missions got more complicated, the more samples they brought back. The last three missions, Apollos 15, 16, and 17, brought back a, a, a massive amount. And actually, I'll, I'll get the uh, the breakdown of, of sample mass from, from them. But again, these samples are go from, from you know, big fist size and larger samples down to, you know, individual fragments of, of broken up rock and mineral fragments. Every year, over 400 samples are distributed now. 
one rock could be cut up into very small fragments and distributed itself. So even though they brought back only 382 kilograms of rock, those each kilogram is, is sort of treated differently. Even the largest rocks are treated somewhat specially. You know, that's perhaps the most important 382 kilograms of, of rock we have on the earth. And we obviously keep a very close eye on, on not only who gets it, but what gets uh, done to the samples. You know, some analyses are destructive. Some analyses are, you know, don't require any destruction of the samples as well. But each gram of material, even each microgram of material is tracked to make sure that the samples are well well taken care of. That is amazing. Oh, and, and for you fellow Yankees who still don't get metric, 382 kilograms comes out to just over 840 pounds. So we're talking almost half a ton of lunar material. Keep in mind that, you know, that was as much as we were allowed to bring back. Each mission could only leave the lunar surface with a certain amount of, of mass. The astronauts had to basically trash on the surface. They used uh, backpacks the you know food waste their own personal waste were dumped on the surface so that they would leave the lunar surface with uh, just the right amount of material you know they would have to weigh each of the the sample cases of, of the moon rocks to know how much extra mass they were bringing back with them so a lot of care was taken into bringing back those samples and was that so rigid on that because they just needed to make sure that they had the right weight for liftoff from the surface or why, why were they so rigid on how much they had to bring back? That's exactly it. They wanted to know exactly how heavy the lunar module was based on their estimates. And so when they're, you know, they know what they're throwing out of the, of the lunar module, they wanted to know what they brought back on. And so they had to know exactly how much those samples weighed that they brought back from the moon. If you remember the movie Apollo 13, which tells the story of the failed landing mission of Apollo 13. When they were about to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, the folks monitoring the trajectory of the, the returning command module noticed that it was not following the anticipated trajectory because they didn't have the uh, you know 50 kilograms of rock that they expected to be bringing back. So they had to put more ballast into the command module to um, accommodate for that. So every kilogram was monitored very carefully on those Apollo missions. You know, By the end of the Apollo program, Apollo 17, that crew brought back 110 kilograms of rock, about 243 pounds of rock. You know, that's a person amount of, of material. It's a lot of material. Apollo 11 only sampled 21 kilograms, about 47 pounds of, of rock. I mean, the reason that they're able to bring back so much more is that the capability of the lunar module was improved. They made it lighter for those last few missions so they could bring back more rocks. And we are very, very glad they did. <laughs> it shows you how light the actual craft was. I mean, if they can bring back that amount of of rock. Oh yeah, those spacecraft, especially the lunar module, which never had to operate inside you know, the atmosphere of the Earth, it had a very thin shell. Basically, the protective skin was just several sheets of aluminum thick. So, you know, it was a very fragile s spacecraft, but it performed exceptionally well. It just seems amazing that what they managed to achieve with that amount of little protection, if you if you like. Yep. It's oh, it's just outstanding. The Apollo program was incredible. I mean, that's what got me interested in becoming a, a planetary scientist. My father was an engineer uh, on the Apollo program in the early days of the Apollo program, building parts for the lunar module and the astronauts' backpacks. And that's what got me fascinated by space and by you know lunar exploration in particular. And so, you know, Apollo not only did a lot to improve the scientific capabilities, but has had this echo across generations of getting people interested in space exploration in science as well. So pretty much space exploration has been in your blood since you were born. Absolutely. Wow. 
and we're still exploring it. We're just not on the surface. That's right. Yeah, we've got this incredible spacecraft that I'm, I'm fortunate enough to, to help uh, keep in orbit around the moon, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. And it's telling us that the moon is this amazing. I mean, we've known that the moon is an amazing place. It's telling us how much more amazing it is than we even expected. You know, it's, again, providing this rich context for understanding how the, how the moon works. And whenever you see what's happening at the moon, that tells us something very important about how every other planet operates. I talked about the Rosetta Stone earlier. The moon is the Rosetta Stone for our understanding of the solar system. So when you look at pictures of Pluto from New Horizons and you see smooth surfaces, we know those smooth surfaces must be young because the moon has surfaces that are not heavily impact cratered. And because of the samples and the exploration that we did in the 1960s and 1970s, we know how, or we think we know how planets work. And by golly, we apply that across the solar system. How do you prevent contamination from the Earth with those samples? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. And, and ultimately, it's, it's very difficult. So the uh, curation facility at the NASA Johnson Space Flight Center in Houston has been maintaining the samples for well, since they came back. And so some samples are kept in pristine, either in vacuum or in a, you know, in a gas nitrogen rich environment because you want to keep it as preserved as possible without getting contaminated by the Earth's atmosphere. There are certain samples that are exposed to the atmosphere and have a lower degree of, of preservation, sort of accept the fact that they are going to be exposed. It really depends on what questions you're asking of the samples. You know, if you are looking for very um, trace amounts of gases preserved inside glasses that were formed on the moon, you need to preserve those samples very differently. So there's a extreme caution taken in handling any of the lunar samples. Uh, you know, some samples have never been exposed to the Earth's atmosphere, or at least have, have attempted to never expose them to the Earth's atmosphere. You know, keep in mind when the astronauts came back, you know, they, they, they stored the samples in the lunar module in essentially souped up briefcases. The briefcases were intended to keep a vacuum. Some of those vacuums didn't preserve even on transit back to the Earth. Some did. And then you have them in the environment of the lunar module or the command module. Command module re-enters the Earth's atmosphere in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> and then the samples were transferred from the, uh, the aircraft carrier back to, uh, to Houston. So, you know, they had a complicated path just to get back to Houston. But great care is, to, is taken to, to keep them uh, as preserved as possible. And there's a lot of effort to keep them pristine, whatever, whatever that means now. But um, as I said, there are some samples that have just been kept on unanalyzed, basically waiting for the day when we have a, a technique or an approach that can keep them as pristine as possible so uh, future generations can study those samples. I was just going to ask that, actually, because that's some foresight there, really. To, to yeah, think that far yeah, ahead. It, it comes down to really, I think, at the time in the '70s and then up to today, recognizing these are I mean, not only did it cost a lot of money to get the samples, but what they represent in terms of understanding the environment at the moon, and you know, also looking down the line, knowing that well, the questions that we answered ask today, or you know, in the past, may not represent all of the types of questions that people want to ask. I'll give you an ex a, a, a good example. So immediately after the samples came back from the moon. There was obviously great interest in trying to identify if any water was present. At the time, it was thought that water wouldn't exist on the lunar surface, that there should be no water. And indeed, the early analysis of the samples showed that there was no water in or on the samples. And the assumption is always that any water that was observed on a lunar sample was contamination from the Earth's atmosphere. Okay, so about 10 years ago, 
there was a study that went back and asked that same question are there any is there any water inside of lunar samples particularly the lunar glasses these are volcanic glass beads that are formed during volcanic eruptions on the moon the samples from apollo 17 famous orange glass samples being sort of the classic example of, of volcanic glass on the moon and a study looked at the interior of those glass beads you cut the glass bead in half you look at the dead center of those glass beads and sure enough they found water h2o inside those glass beads now in the 1970s when that study was done it was assumed that any of the water that was measured was as a result of um, you know instrument error but now with the technique of being able to analyze those sam samples and identify water has improved to such a degree where you know any error bars is less than the amount of water that is found and so the conclusion was yes there was water in lunar samples Again, that's 40 years after the samples came back to the Earth. Same question, but new approach, new technique, ultimately resulting in a, in a really important discovery. So by preserving the samples, keeping some aside, knowing that you know there may be questions in the future that use either techniques that haven't been developed yet or, or analytical methods that haven't been developed yet, but that will be valuable, we want to keep those samples preserved. And even just to be able to use the samples, analyze the samples requires an incredible amount of approvals. You know, not any random scientist can just ask for lunar samples. You have to go through a vetting process, an approval process, show that you can take care of the samples, that you're not going to mistreat the samples at all. These are really cared for and a lot of effort is put into preserving them. The samples, when they returned from the moon, were, were they put through a kind of a quarantine procedure before you could actually work with them? We're all familiar with with the quarantine that the first three uh, Apollo surface crews went through where they came back from the, from the moon and were put into uh, the quarantine trailers for, for several days after they returned to make sure they didn't come back with any moon bugs. I always wonder what future generations will think when they look at the footage of Apollo 11 coming back. They get off the, the command module and they're essentially thrown into a, an Airstream trailer for several weeks. Um, you know, how, that's how we treated our, our returning heroes. But the samples were kept in their vacuum boxes and were immediately transferred to the, what was then called the Lunar Receiving Lab is now the curation facility and were essentially immediately at least given a, a preliminary analysis, a preliminary investigation of, okay, what did we get back? Weighing, tagging, sampling, imaging, photographing, doing a preliminary survey of what was brought back. There was less concern about moon bugs on the samples, I think, because they were kept in, well, not quite quarantine, but were kept in a very controlled environment as well. Yeah, obviously, after the, the, the first three missions came back and the astronauts were healthy, the concerns of any... <laughs> space bacteria uh, disappeared but the uh, the analysis of the samples and the images and the other data that, that were, were brought back began essentially immediately I, I do have one other question that sure. going back to the moon because Mark and I were just talking about this on our last well our, our last space related podcast the one thing that kind of gets on our nerves seeing as how you you focus a lot on the moon and stuff like that mm -hmm. one of the things that, that gets on our nerves is the moon is right there we can see the thing it's so mm -hmm. close to us yet there is so much focus on mars and getting people to mars and blah blah why are so many people ignoring the moon well um there is this we have to overcome with the moon this sense that because we went there with the Apollo program, that we've done, finished our exploration of the moon, that the six landed missions to the lunar surface by Apollo answered everything with the moon. And there is this misconception that because we've done the Apollo program, the moon is no longer scientifically relevant or interesting. And obviously that's not 
an accurate representation. We went six times. The moon is the surface area of the moon is roughly the size of the continent of Africa. And no one would ever say that by visiting Africa, six different places on the continent of Africa, you visited all of Africa. So there's that misconception. I will say Mars has this long lasting curiosity about life and water and you know our role in the solar system so there's you know we will never be able to to necessarily compete with the mythology that mars has around life on mars but what we do understand and people you know it's known the moon is close three days to get to the moon what about a year to get to mars that there are things that we can do at the moon that are first just on one level just easier and not that space travel or space exploration is easy but that there is that proximity and that we have shown that we can do it. Uh, there, there are people who are, you know, like any community, you know, I think of sports fans who, you know, who are ravenous about Mars. And so Mars has a very vocal, very active community of, of scientists, of leaders who are beating the drum for Mars. And they, they get a lot of attention. You know, I mean, I think ultimately humans in exploration of space are going to go to Mars. Uh, it's my hope that they happen to, to, to train by going to the moon and, and stop at the moon along the way, if you will. Um, you know, and, and then exploration occurs in cycles. And so we are very eager for the, the pendulum to swing back to the moon at some point. That may happen. And when it does, we'll be ready for it. Right. Yeah, you basically um, reflected what yeah. Mark and I were saying. Use that as a staging area and maybe even a refueling area. You know, yeah. if anything, use it for a test bed because if there are developing, some, well, obviously they're going to have to develop some kind of buildings to sustain humanity up there. Do it on the moon because if there's a problem, it's three days to get yep. something up there instead yeah. of here. Yeah, you know, and the, the engineers will say, well, landing on the moon and operating on the moon is very different from landing on Mars and operating on Mars. And I would agree with that. But there are certain things about how do you live and work on a planet that are applicable. And mm -hmm. as much as the Apollo program showed us how to successfully live on the moon for three days, there are things that we can learn about living on a different planet for perhaps longer than that. And so there are lessons to be learned about space exploration, about living off of the Earth down the line that I anticipate that the moon will prove to be the, the correct way to go. But there is lots of debate. There are folks who, who want to go to Mars and who feel that any deviation from going straight to Mars is a distraction. And that's one of the great debates that we get to have all the time. <laughs> but, you know, I also understand that it's going to be expensive and so we have to look for ways to use the taxpayers dollars as efficiently as possible as well we have this window of opportunity right now and there are valuable lessons not only to learn from the samples as we talked about before but also to learn from the people who went there people who got them there so have you actually been in conversation with some of these legends um, i've had a, an opportunity to meet a handful of the apollo astronauts very fortunate and i've been very very fortunate to, to develop a working relationship with with harrison schmidt jack schmidt who was the lunar module pilot on Apollo 17, the only geologist to go back to the moon. And he's been very interested in the data coming down from LRO, especially what the data tells him, tells us, about where he went, the Apollo 17 landing site in the Taurus Latrobe Valley. And so I've been working with him over the last several years of analyzing the LRO data and reanalyzing the Apollo 17 mission results in light of this new data. He has a paper that I'm very fortunate to be a co-author on that's going through the review process right now, basically re-examining where he went on the moon in light of this new data and coming up with some new conclusions, learning new things about where he went on the moon through the lens of, of LRO. And that's been an incredibly rewarding, satisfying experience. I've learned a lot about what he did. And he's reshaped his view of what he did on the moon through this new data. And that's been incredibly 
well, first of all, it's been awesome, <laughs> but also it's been an incredible experience, you know, revisiting the places we thought we knew so well and finding out that we don't know them as well as we, we maybe thought. So he's very hands-on then? Oh, yes. Actually, he and I will be at a meeting um, here in the Washington, D.C. area next week talking about lunar science. He's got a paper he'll be presenting, looking again at some of the samples that he collected in light of sort of in the, in the new lens of LRO data and just hearing, you know, the fact that we can interact with him, ask him questions, not just questions like, what was it like to walk on the moon, but well, now that we see that there are, there may be more tectonic activity on the moon, how does that interpret or change your interpretation of the Apollo 17 landing site? Those sorts of things give us really important insight into even just how the process of, of exploring a planet might work, especially now that we have such wonderful data for that planet. So for him, it must be like visiting an old friend. I think so. And an old friend you haven't seen for a while, and you bring jars new memories. And it's certainly spurred him on to revisit what he did there, the samples and what those samples tells tell us. Um, I think he's gotten re-energized in, in thinking about the moon. And I mean, one, it's just awesome to be able to saddle up next to an astronaut and ask him a question, but then also to have him as engaged and interested in the results as, as well as is just very satisfying, very rewarding. I think I'll be a, a little bit scared to, to talk to an astronaut because I'll be worried that I might say something stupid. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think they all are individual, different people, and um, they all have their own personalities, but um, they were able at the front line of an incredible part of, of our history and a history that is not that far in the distance past only you know 45 years ago they were doing this and they all have stories to tell they're interesting stories and i think those stories tell us something about what we could do but what also you know individuals can do in extreme circumstances and i think that's that's very interesting it's been an absolute honor and a pleasure to speak mm -hmm. to you today and thanks for coming on board to share your knowledge i enjoyed every moment of it guys i can't tell you how much fun it was we should do it again sometime <laughs> definitely definitely i'll hold you to that awesome. sounds good we've got Next year, on August 21st, we've, in the U.S. at least, we've got a total solar eclipse crisscross in the country. Try saying that five times fast. That should be a lot of fun. Hopefully, people will be excited about that. In a year, we have more to talk about in the, with the moon, and there's never a dull moment. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Noah. And oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And we'll speak to you again soon. Can't wait. Spanhead Productions are a small, independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, Spanhead Productions. .weebly.com That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com Who knew that there was so much to the moon? And thanks to Noah Petro for coming up online. That was amazing of him. And also Sarah Schleider. Thanks to her at uh, Goddard also for setting this up for us. Absolutely. That was, and, and for contacting us, that's the part that I was thrilled with. Yeah. You know, they contacted us. We yeah. didn't contact them. Uh, but he was a really great guy to talk to. And uh, if he didn't have um, meetings and things coming up, I think he could have spoken to us for a couple of hours longer, probably. That's what I like about those kinds of things. We just do it as we said, like we're at a bar. 
Yeah. Yeah. We're just having a drink together. This is not a formal interview. No, that's the way we always like to play it. And that uh, that worked really well for that one. So, I think that's about it for us tonight. I believe so. Thanks again for coming on the show. Anytime, my friend. And thanks for everyone listening out there. And we will speak to you again soon. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the page that include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. Don't forget to rate and review us. You can find links on all our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.